0: All right. This all started when I interviewed Matt Lucas a couple weeks ago. You may remember. You know, I was just playing a Matt Lucas record, and I kind of have this habit of every few times, every you know, once a month or so, I go and go through the playlist and I look at the records I played, and I think to myself, Are any of these people still alive? And then I send out emails trying to get an interview with whoever's still alive. And so often, it, it's fruitless. It comes, you know, nothing comes of it. But uh, as I think I mentioned my introduction to the Matt Lucas Podcast. Matt called me right back, and we spoke on the telephone and uh, set a date. And then when it was over, he said, you got to talk to some of my friends. And some of them I'd already talked to, but uh, he gave me phone numbers or emails for uh, Narvel Feltz, who we talked to a couple weeks ago, and uh, also for Ronnie Hawkins, who he says doesn't do email. So I called up Ronnie. We set a date. Uh, then they changed the date. And, uh, uh, and then one night, I just got an email in the middle of the night from Ronnie's wife, I guess she does email, saying, hey, uh, you've got to do it tomorrow, because we're going to Florida for four months. So it's either tomorrow or never. So uh, I said, okay, tomorrow, 1030 a.m. So I wrote up some notes, and uh, I called Ronnie at 1030 sharp. And then after about 28 minutes, he said, okay, that's great. I got to go. I was about 80% done with the interview. So It's mostly done. We didn't get to talk about a few interesting things. Maybe we'll have him on again. Uh, But he literally just almost hung up on me, which was great. It's sort of, in some ways, the best way to to end this interview. Uh, Just, uh, this guy's fantastic. Uh, Even with the ending, I loved it. Uh, Here is my chat with the great Ronnie Hawkins. All right, Ronnie Hawkins, there he is, and uh, he joins us live on the telephone this morning. Good morning, Ronnie Hawkins, the Hawk, Rompin' Ronnie, Sir Ronnie, Mr. Dynamo.
1: Oh, listen, thank you. I wish I had $10 just like you. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) What should I call you? Uh, Call me a teenage idol, (laughs) (laughs) working girl's favorite, and the housewife's companion.
0: You are forever young. I think you were born in 1935 in Arkansas, is that correct?
1: Yes, I was. The land of opportunity. That's what the license plate said in Arkansas, then. It's an opportunity if you can get enough money to get out.
0: <laughs> Tell me what your childhood was like. I mean, were your folks rich, poor? What did
1: they do for work? My dad was a barber, and my mom was a school teacher. And did they listen to music? My dad's family, they were all musical. In fact, one of his brothers became super big time, I mean, for the times, you know. He got to play on network radio, which was something else for country and folk music back then, and he's also the father of Dale Hawkins, you know, that wrote Suzy Q, my cousin.
0: Of course. So is that kind of what put the bug uh, in, in your bonnet for music?
1: Yeah, I guess here and there. My grandma, all the Hawkinses played that old mountain music, you know, fiddles and banjos and mandolins and stuff like that. And that's when I got in the music. And, and they had a band, the Hawkins Brothers Band, but they couldn't make a living, of course, like most musicians can and they had to break it up and get regular jobs.
0: So your mom was a schoolteacher. Was you uh, heading towards music? Was that all right with her?
1: Well, uh, I don't think any parents want their kids to get into music. <laughs> it's a little rough. But, no, you know, she, she went along. She thought I had a little bit of talent. I, I didn't have near enough, I can tell you that, but uh, I had enough to, to, to fake it.
0: So I, I read that after high school you studied physical education at University of Arkansas. Now, did you have a band already in high school?
1: Yes, I, I had a little group that we played with only on weekends because the, uh, the members of the band two or three of them had regular jobs. We we couldn't make enough money to, to keep everybody going full time, so we just played weekends, and they had they had their regular jobs. So
0: this would be the early nineteen fifties, before Elvis, before Bill Haley, right?
1: This no, this was around fifty five, I think, and I think I don't know if I think Elvis had come out by then. I can't remember, but I remember I went to Memphis in nineteen fifty two. And that was before the word rockabilly or rock and roll was said, I was going to go down there and try to get some songs. I was going to put me a little frontman act together, you know. And, uh, my dad was a barber, and he had a, an old shine boy by the name of Buddy Hayes. And Buddy Hayes had a, had a band. They played uh, every weekend, you know. And, and he played trumpet, so they were kind of doing a takeoff on Louis Armstrong then. But the, but, but the band, You Blues, and they let me come back and watch him play, you know, and that's when I really got interested in the blues music. I could never do it right, though. My throat was too country. I wanted to sound like Bobby Blue Bland and it sounded more like Ernest Tubb.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I think that kind of intersection of soul music and country music is kind of exactly what Ronnie Hawkins is all about. I mean, that's your thing as far as I'm concerned. So you should be, be thankful that you, uh, you couldn't copy somebody. You had to be yourself.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, it was... Uh, I, I told everybody when they asked me, what, what is rockabilly? And I said, well, rockabilly to me, when I got down it's a country boy trying to copy the black music and can't do it very good. And it <laughs> comes out a different thing and they call it rockabilly.
0: Yeah, that's, that's perfect. So, wait a minute. Now, were you going to be a gym teacher or something? Was that your dream? Yes,
1: yeah, yes. If I couldn't make it in music, I had two other choices. One was the army because I already had eight years in for everything, you know, so I could have retired before I was 40, full pay. Then that was the easiest. I mean, and then I thought about teaching, because teaching was easy, because you got all summer off, and a couple of weeks here, and a couple of weeks there. If I couldn't make it in music, music is what I wanted to make it in, but, shoot, I was, I was two pay grades below a prisoner of war when I, you know, <laughs> we didn't make much money. Five dollars a night a man, and boy, that was a good job for us.
0: Oh, tell me about, I mean, I, I, I've read a little bit about your life and how you like to live it. It doesn't seem like a great match with being in the armed services.
1: Well, I didn't want in the armed services at all, but I was just looking for something that was the quickest and the easiest way for me to make a little money. And I, because I'd already put in eight years of National Guard and also ROTC, then I wouldn't have to serve that. No, I, I didn't, when I went in the Army, I went in because they had a special thing for those who'd had five or years in or more, and you only had to go uh, regular Army for six months, which, you know, six months is better than two years to me. I would have joined the Army as a prisoner of war if I could have gotten out any quicker.
0: <laughs> yeah, gotcha. And so, okay, you hooked up with a, a band in the Army that were all African-American guys, is that right? Yeah, Blackhawks.
1: I called them, call them the Blackhawks.
0: So w- w- were those guys a cooking band?
1: Oh, they were good musicians, you know, because you had the elite in the Army. I mean, there were real good entertainers, professional entertainers that was in the Army. Everybody had to go in the Army, so there was a lot of professionals. I'm trying to think of some of the names. They were big stars but they were in the Army, and you could play with blacks on the military base. You had the trouble when you, I had the trouble when I tried to play in the bars in town with them.
0: Yeah, what happened?
1: Well, they just they just didn't like it. We got we got shot at. We got sugar in the gas tanks. We, we were threatened all the time. All kinds of stuff. I I guess that was 19 I can't remember the time. My mind is gone, but it was a uh, 57, 58, I imagine.
0: Yeah, amazing. So, uh you put together you have your band the, the Hawks after you get out of, get out of the army and you start touring around. I'm guessing around the Arkansas area, Oklahoma, Missouri, around there and uh is it is it easy? Is, is it accepted? Is this kind of music accepted? Is are the kids? Is there uh, are there folks who want to hear this kind of music out there? Because that is not, you know. Even though rockabilly music was popular, it was not what was in the mainstream. It's not what was on the charts so
1: much. No, let me tell you, it was just starting to get popular. And uh, but but the preachers, if you can, I don't know if you can remember this one. Now you may be, too, um, but uh, the preachers to the South were preaching against rock and roll music. They say they started saying it was the music of the devil, it messes the kids up, they go crazy, they want to dance, take their clothes off, <laughs> and, and everything else. So it was the music that was just starting. It was low-cast because it was just those certain people. When I came to Canada, it was just starting, and that's, I think that's the reason why we went over so good in Canada, because we were playing the music that was just starting to get super popular.
0: Hmm. Uh, let me just jump back. I read something that you owned a club called the Rockwood Club in Fayetteville, uh, or you ran this club. What is the story behind that?
1: No, I, I, I had three clubs in Arkansas at, at very young age because I was making more money than anybody else that I know running whiskey from Missouri to Oklahoma. Oklahoma was a dry state. And so the bootleggers, they give millions of dollars to the churches to, to keep the, the whiskey out. Well, It wouldn't be legal, but because they were they were running the illegal stuff, and they if it went legal, they're out of business. So I had a, I made quite a bit of money compared. I was making three or four hundred dollars a week when my dad was making seventy or eighty as a barber. So I couldn't spend it because they didn't know something was going wrong. I couldn't buy a new Cadillac or anything like that. So I invested as a silent partner in my first bar with a friend, a good friend of mine, and that was called the Tea Table. Then we bought a place called the Shamrock in Fedville, and then when they, it was, it wasn't, we didn't own the building, but then when I, uh, I, I made a little money, I bought a building and everything in Fedville called the Rockwood.
0: And folks came by and, and played. Uh, the, the, the big stars came came through there and played, right?
1: Oh, we we had all the Memphis boys coming in because uh, they, you know that they weren't super big time. We had Carl Perkins and. I, we didn't have Elvis, but we had all, them, all the other cats, you know they, that was just starting. I was down there when Johnny Cash was a car salesman for crying out loud. And, <laughs> and Carl Perkins he hadn't even got any shoes yet, and Charlie <laughs> certainly' rich. We, we wrote a song like that, and I said, and I said I knew Carl when he had no shoes. I knew B.B. B. King before he got the blues." There's <laughs> a song we put together here. And
0: so did the law ever get on you for uh, running bootleg whiskey?
1: They never caught me. They never caught me because I was using a a 1929 Model A Ford. (laughs) They were looking for big cars, big trucks, big Cadillacs and stuff like that. I never even got stopped.
0: Gotcha. So you're torn around and around, I think, in 1958, uh, Conway Twitty, who I don't think was even Conway Twitty, then tells you you have got to go up to Canada because things are happening up there. Why was there such a huge scene up in Canada? What? Why?
1: Because it was the start. It was on the very start of Rockabilly. Nobody had, they weren't even playing it yet. In fact, 90% or more of the stations in Canada would not play rock and roll or rockabilly. One station got on its chum, as it was called, and it became the biggest station in Canada because of the popularity of the music they were playing, and that was rock and roll and rockabilly.
0: Gotcha. So there's a whole bunch of clubs up there, there's a whole circuit, and uh, you kind of really fit in there well. You were driving audiences crazy, is that right?
1: I drove, I've covered every province in Canada uh, playing, you know, Newfoundland. Uh, Nova Scotia, I played every, every city, but I played in one bar as long as one will ever be played in, and that was about 14 or 15 years, And but I would go out on the last of the month, two or three months a year, and promote whatever record we had.
0: Gotcha. Well, let's talk about records. How did you get signed to Roulette Records in New York City based, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're spending a lot of time in Canada, you're from Arkansas, how did you get to Roulette Records and Morris Levy?
1: Well, I'll tell you, my our, our agent then, Mister Harold Cutlets, had some friends in New York. He said, and we went in there to audition for them, and a whole, and we auditioned for all oh, Columbia, which was uh, Mitch Miller. Then, can you remember that name? Sure. He
0: hated rock and roll. Apparently, he right? hated
1: it. He hated it, <laughs> and he told me years later when he he came in to see me in London, Ontario, because he was going around doing a conductor thing with each of the. Philharmonic Orchestra in every city, right? And he came in to see me, and he told me about it, and so I, I fixed him up with a, a couple of things that he couldn't believe, and uh, then he told me, you know, he couldn't stand rock and roll back then. <laughs> anyway, we auditioned for him and everybody, and a couple of other things, but then we got a word, this, this Roulette Records was really interested in us because one of their spies had been over to Columbia and had seen us, and Morris Levy, Morris Levy came over and signed us. And, and we'd heard rumors that, that they may be a little crooked in this and that And the other, after we thought we might be signing with them. And, and of course, we went, he said, the boys, don't sign with them too long because you, they, may, they may be crooked. And so Levon was worried about that. You know, he said, don't sign too long, Ronnie. So I went in there to, to sign the contracts and make everything. And when Levon came back out, when I came out, Levon said, how much did you have to sign? How long did you have to sign for? I said, life with an option.
0: The option to stay alive. Yeah, I mean, oh
1: baby, but it was interesting. Levy wasn't. He's an outlaw and a you know really a big time Jewish gangster. But boy, I learned a lot from him, and he was something else. And I don't think he stole too much money off me because we didn't make that much.
0: (laughs) I mean, he was famous for you know hanging people out the window or making people uh, very unhappy who disappointed him. I
1: heard they did that with Jackie Wilson. I don't know. Friday wasn't there. But I've heard that because Jackie was a, <clears throat> and you can you remember Alan Freed? Sure. Okay, we, he had the big shows back. He was the number one radio man in 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 the, in the world, I guess. Philadelphia Bandstand was was just was, was starting with Dick Clark because they had trouble with her cat who started. Dick Clark was in the mail room, they said, and he, they put him in charge because he was young, young looking. But so Alan Freed was the biggest thing in music back then in my time. He had the, he had the big shows and the, he had those big theater shows. And I was lucky enough, Marsh Levy got me on them. And that's when I uh, got to meet all those great black artists because I, I think that Alan Freed was the first one to start playing a lot of black music on, 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 on white radio.
0: So the, these are these shows where everybody would come out and do two or three songs, but you'd repeat the whole show four or five or six times a day.
1: Yes, it was he, he, twice a day we did shows for two weeks.
0: Oh, sounds like and, fun, and,
1: and I got to meet all those all the stars of, of the time. Otherwise, I'd have probably never seen them. But it was very very interesting, and that's where I got to see my favorite. You know, was, was Bo Disney because of those rhythms he could put out on that guitar. You know, oh my gosh, they were something else, and I really became a fan. His and learned how to do some of that stuff, and I did a couple of Bo Diddley, two or three of Bo Diddley's songs. I recorded them.
0: You sure did, and you do fantastic versions. So, I mean, Bo Diddley, kind of a a genius, just like a guy from a different planet, almost, just a crazy one of a kind. Was he a nice guy? Was he?
1: Oh, I I, I loved old Bo, you know. But he was some kind of a electronic genius because he had the first Wow Wows and the first Wow Wows and the first Echo anybody ever heard. This is. You know, five or six, seven years before it, it, Fender and all them uh, uh, amp people put it on their amps. Mm. It's a long time. You know, they were trying everything, but for somehow or another, Bo Diddley figured it out. You know, I don't. Nobody else was doing it at the time. Mm. Can you remember a cat named Link Ray? Sure. Well, he had some of those sounds too. I didn't get to to, to ask him about how he did it like I did Bo, but he had that different sound.
0: Hmm. Uh, so tell me, did Morris Levy uh, pay you? I mean, did he regularly pay you?
1: Well, no, no, no. I, I didn't even get a royalty check. But what it was, he spent so much money promoting us, and so much because he thought we was going to be big. And then there for a little while, we we, we thought we were too. <laughs> we started to believe in the write-ups, but uh, it didn't last long. And we found that somebody else came along. And when you, you you kind of get put in the back of the shelf if they're working on. Other acts, you know, that's young, strong acts. But I learned so much from Morris Levy. I don't regret not getting paid anything from Morris Levy because I learned so much from him.
0: Now, if somebody wants to use one of those old uh, songs from the roulette era in a, in a movie or a commercial or something, do you get money nowadays or still no money?
1: Well, no, I, I not, not anything from roulette, but I, I I got some from The Last Waltz from Robbie Robertson and them, you know. Mm-hmm. And I get a few little things here and there that that, that I wrote. But I only got half of what I wrote uh, for Roulette Records because they put somebody else's name with me. I don't. Even, it was a lady. Uh, you think this man. What was her name? Jacqueline McGill. Jacqueline McGill. I don't even know who that is. Never even heard of her. She's Doesn't very prolific. I, yeah. I, I, I heard later that it was someone's wife that had really helped uh, Morris do some things. Right. I guess. And that's what I heard. And they do things like that. They put like. Chuck Berry had Alan Freed's name on. it. Did you know that?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I did hear. Yeah, I think Jacqueline McGill might. I've heard different stories, but maybe it was just Morris's leave. Morris Levy uh, just using a female name. But yes, Jacqueline McGill is the co-writer of tons of your songs. So let's. Well, talk- I think
1: that's what the, I think she was the wife of, of a very special friend of, of Marston. Now that's what I heard. Huh. I'm not sure, but I didn't. I, I never. I, don't ever, I never knew what, who who she was really.
0: Yeah, well, tell me about songwriting, because you did write a lot of your songs. I mean, you picked great songs to cover, but you also wrote a lot of great songs. Would you sit alone and write a song, or was it just the
1: band well, jamming? I, I, I just did that as a hobby. I knew I wasn't going to be any Irving Berlin or something <laughs> like that, but, but I just wanted to sit down there and write a few little stories and see if they would go over. Now, Robbie Robertson, he wrote a couple of songs. I, mean, I think he was 15 or 16 years old. He was kind of our roadie then. He, he was in errands for us before he came into the band. And, and I recorded a couple of Robbie's songs. I can't remember when. Maybe it was 58, 59. But it was, I don't know if you can remember any of the songs. when I was, Hey Baba Lou, was one of them, and Someone Like You was the other one. And I had a little time left in a session because we learned all the songs. We played them for a month or two before we went into the studio to record them. So we knew all the songs and we didn't have to mess around. So I, I would do, a, I'd finish all of our songs halfway through a session. And then I would try other things just to see how it sounded. And Robbie's was a couple of them.
0: Yeah, and I think Robbie's songs were also co-written by Jacqueline McGill, the famous Jacqueline McGill. Oh, well, um, it may be. I'm I don't
1: sure. know for sure, but they, they did that on everybody. I, yeah. know, I For a big star, what was it? Shondell's uh, Tommy... Uh, Tommy James. Tommy James. All right, He was the one that went with Morris next, wasn't he? Right, yes. Okay, and boy, he was suing... Now, see, he sold a lot of records and did a lot of things, and so he was suing Morris all the time because Morris didn't pay him near what he, what he should have.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I, you made a couple of records on Roulette One, the songs of Hank Williams, the folk ballads of Ronnie Hawkins. I would. I, I'm guessing that those were not your idea, or were they?
1: No, they just tell you back those days, your A and R man and your record company picked out some songs that they thought would be hits, or they thought would, would be good for you. And because of the situation, and that they thought me doing an album. By Hank Williams, which I loved Hank Williams, but I couldn't, I didn't know any of the songs. I'd never learned them because I was trying to be a rockabilly, right? But, I, but I'd learned the, the whole, al- we did a whole album on on Hank Williams, and his wife, Audrey, I don't know if she's still alive or not, but she was there, and Hank Williams Jr. was about 15 or 16, and they were there every day for every session for a week that I did to Hank Williams.
0: I did not know that. That is amazing. Now I know that a lot of your, you know, we talked about this, you're from Arkansas, you're up in Canada and eventually you move up to Canada, but you recorded a lot of those early uh, stuff in Bell Sound Studios in New York, famous studio with Henry Glover producing, and those are some really red hot sessions. I mean, the band just sounds great. The arrangements are great. They're they're just smoking hot records. They they still sound fantastic today. Is that cuz you guys were just such a well-rehearsed live band?
1: Well, we played, I, I guess we were the <laughs> most rehearsed band. We played at never less than six days a week, and at least six months a year, we played seven because I could pull out and play on Sundays for the different jobs. And, and also, we, we rehearsed five nights a week, just about every week. And that band, the band, the, the young group I put together, Levon and them, they became probably one of the tightest, best bands, in my opinion, on the planet because nobody would, has done all that stuff we did to get that good. And they really got good. And then when I hired uh, uh, Garth Hudson to come in and teach him music, uh, they, they passed me musically like a bolt of lightning. <laughs> and one year. They were a big-time, hot band.
0: Yeah, so you had this band called The Hawks that Levon was in, and, and you guys were spending so much time in, in uh, Canada that most of the guys, except for Levon, decided to go back to America, and that's when the guys who became the band known as
1: The Band sort of that's became... It. That's it. I, yeah. I, I, was, I was trying to put together the best bar band. I wasn't thinking about the big-time or selling the billion records. I was trying to survive in the little area that we built, you know, the, a club circuit. And, and a club is different than anything else. You've got to have musicians that will mix with the crowd and show with the crowd to keep the people coming back. So I decided, I told Eva I was going to put together the best rockabilly band for a bar ever because I knew all these young musicians that I'd helped. And they were all leaders of their own band anyway. Uh, everybody had their own band. Robbie, he was playing with all the musicians in Toronto. Ricky Danko had a band there that did... Uh, The music, and then Richard Manuel had the Rockin' Revels, and Garth Hudson, he was in charge of two bands, one for classical music and one for jazz. And so he was also uh, a teacher. He was a bona fide school to be a teacher. And so I hired him because of his reputation, or I'd met him several times. And then when I had my piano player left, I don't know if you remember these names or not, Stan Celeste without a doubt, was the greatest rock and roll piano player ever born. And every rock and roll piano player out there will tell you that. Elvis Presley's piano player, told him Stan Celeste was the best. But he went back to school because his wife was on his case about musicians. You know how that is. And so I had to get a piano player, so I hired Richard Manuel, who Richard wasn't near even close to being as good on piano as Stan Celeste, but he had that throat. I don't know why you. Did, you I don't think. I guess you've ever heard Richard sing a lot of stuff. He didn't do it with the band, but he he was by far the best singer, by far in the band. I mean, I hired him because of his throat. You know, he could sing it soul stuff that I couldn't do, and I was just trying to keep a unit together that would keep drawing people into the bar.
0: Yeah, uh, one of the 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 things that I think is under people undervalues how amazing Levon Helm was at sort of keeping that thing, that swampy beat going, and not too loud, but always, you know, very consistent and right in there. How I mean, you're very humble. How much of, of, of what Levon was doing and what the whole band was doing was coming from your direction, and how much was just an organic, that's just the way those boys played?
1: Well, I just picked the songs that I thought I could do. Levon was actually, you know, he was the one that did all the arranging, all the music. Yeah. Levon was my right arm, left arm, and, and both legs. Levon <laughs> was blessed. He was, he was blessed with super, super musical abilities, which we didn't know about at first, but he, he, I mean, he could do things that uh, nobody else could, I don't know if you know this enough, but, but at one time, Robbie Robertson wasn't coming along quite quick enough, and I put Levon back on lead guitar and brought in Conway Twitty's drummer for a while, but, but it didn't work out. Nobody was as good as Levon. I mean, Levon could sing and play, and it drove up band, and Levon, it was like a like a country boy genius.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I want to remind everybody, Ronnie Hawkins is our guest. RonnieHawkins.com is the place for information about uh, what Ronnie's up to and to take a look. There's all kinds of pictures and all kinds of stuff up there to to take a peek at. Now, tell me about lifestyle. I mean, during this time, you guys are, like you said, you're, you're, you're rehearsing, you're playing every day, you're playing for hours, you're working the crowd, and you are the front man. You are out there, you know, dancing and singing and getting people. What was the lifestyle like? I mean, are you— oh. uh,
1: Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, you know, we were lucky because we were, at the very first of it, we were drawing crowd. We had lineups on a Monday night, and we had them for probably 14 or 15 years till they changed the rules and the laws, and then it started narrowing down because they opened up clubs all over Ontario rather than just on Yonge Street. But by that time, Levon and the boys had, had gone out on their own, and uh, they went with Bob Dylan. They brought Bob Dylan to town when they were playing down the street from me, and I met Bob Dylan. For the for the first time, you know, and I I never heard I mean I'd heard of Bob Dylan, but I didn't know that much about him. But Gordon Lightfoot and Ian Tyson and all the folk heroes up here, Neil Young and all, they all knew Bob, and the band knew Bob, and I guess somehow another Albert Grossman, I guess you as you know was a manager, he saw the potential and he had the band come with uh, with, with Bob Dylan for a while. They brought Bob Dylan and to pre- rehearse down the street from where I played, the Cock Door. And I met him for the first time. Robbie and Levon came up to get me and took me down to meet Bob. And they told me all these things about Bob. He said, Bob's a little different. He's a little different. He doesn't shake hands. He doesn't do this. And so I went down there, and, you know, i listened to a few of his songs. And and I went down and talking to him. And, of course, he stuck out his hand to shake hands. <laughs> and I, I, I shook it, you know. But I was just joking, and I said, Bob, uh, everybody's bragging on you, and I said, you are, you are pretty good uh, with your melodies, but I said, I, I, I'm going to have to help you with your lyrics. <laughs> he, he gave me a Mona Lisa smile, you know. He didn't, he didn't smile much, you know, but uh, <laughs> he, he hung around a long time after that. I, we did a lot of things together, Bob, but I hadn't heard from him now in, in a long time.
0: He's busy. Uh, maybe he lost your number.
1: He ain't got time to get the the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Listen, I've got I've got people waiting on me here for about thirty minutes. I've got to go, but you can call me back anytime you want to.
0: Uh, all right. Uh, I, I I appreciate that uh, you could take some time for us this morning, Ronnie Hawkins. Uh, a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sorry you got to go. Uh, I know you're going to Florida too, so maybe we'll talk to you again in the spring.
1: Oh, that would be great. Anytime you want to, if you're ever up this way, I can tell you some stories that uh, Caligula would be ashamed of.
0: I would love to hear them. I want to hear all about, uh, all about everything I haven't gotten to, but <laughs> uh, I know you've got to go. And
1: thank you very much for thanking them, because I need all the help I can get. I'm 82 years old, and I'm, I, 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 I'm down to three or four girls a week so all I can take out. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. Uh, Is my nose growing? <laughs> 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 all right, thank you so much, baby, and call me again.
0: Okie Thanks, Ronnie.
1: And thank you. Sure. Okay,
0: that's, that's not exactly how I had planned it, but perhaps being hung up on by Ronnie Hawkins is the best possible ending. Let's hear one more Ronnie Hawkins song, and then I'll uh, we'll regroup. I'll tell you the questions that I didn't get to. <laughs> Here's Ronnie Hawkins.
2: I'm going to give you 40 days to get back home. I done called up a gypsy woman on the telephone. I'm going to send out a worldwide who do that be the very thing that'll suit you. I'm going to sit and she'll be back home in 40 days. Woo! 40, days. 40, days. Woo! 40 days. 40 days. I'm going to sit and she'll be back home. Everything that'll suit you. I want to see she'll be back home in a party, day. party day. I'm really talking to the judge in a private early this morning. It took me to the sheriff's office to sign a warning You are gonna go across Georgia Guinea That'll be the very thing that'll send you I'm gonna say she'll be back home in 40 days Woo! 40 days Holiday. 40 days Holiday. 40 days 40 days I'm gonna say she'll be back home in 40 days Holiday. I'm gonna send out a worldwide Woo! Do that It'll be the very thing that'll suit you I'm gonna say she'll be back home for today. I you. I'm gonna city. she'll be back Home oh, in it days. don't shine My baby gonna take it to private eye And if that private eye can't be She ain't gonna get no love on me I was tired. Got me a baby, she live on a hill. If she don't love me Lord, somebody will. Me and my baby, we had a date. She wiggle that thing like a Cadillac 8. All you even now because I see. She ain't gonna get my woman from me. What you gonna do when the creek goes dry, honey? Honey. What you gonna do when the creek goes dry, babe? What you gonna do when the creek goes dry? You gonna hang your head and cry, honey? Honey. Baby Baby mine. Well, y'all come a cat with a sack on his back, honey Honey Y'all come a cat with a sack on his back, babe Baby Y'all come a cat with a sack on his back All them women he can pack, honey Honey Baby Baby mine. Baby mine. Well, I'm going down to Timbuktu, honey I'm going down to to Timbuktu, babe. I'm going down to Timbuktu. Get that man who made a fool of you, honey. Honey, Baby 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 mine. Honey. Honey, Baby baby mine. What you gonna do? Whoa, babe. What you gonna do? I'm seeking tired. Full of the rain with you. Well, this the last time I'm telling you to change your way. I'm telling you, my baby, Lord, I mean what to say. The last time I'm telling you to stop at jive, You're gonna find yourself outside. oh babe. What you gonna do I'm sick and tired Fool on the rain with you do Whoa, baby. What you gonna do I'm seeking time for another rain with you Well I wake up in the morning, get you something to eat Before I go to work I even brush your teeth, I come back in the evening, all you're still in bed You got a rag tie to rain in your head, Whoa, baby What you gonna do? I'm seeking time, food on the rain with the you. Seven miles of bop wire. Use a cobra snake for a necktie. Got a brand new house on the roadside, made from rattlesnake hide. I got a brand new chimney made on top, made from a human skull. Now come on, baby, let's take a little walk and tell me, who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Howlin' took me by the hand and said, Ooh, daddy? I understand." Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? With blue and around the corner, an ice wagon through. I bump was hit, Lord, and somebody screamed. You should have heard just what I seen. Now, who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? I got a tombstone hand and a graveyard in mind. I live long enough, and I ain't scared of dying. Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Who do you love? Above the town Echo of her footsteps Soft as I down Waiting for her master To kiss away her tears Waiting through The years Bitter green they called her Walking in the sun Loving everyone That she met Bitter green they called her Waiting in the sun Waiting for someone To take her home some say he was a sailor who died away at sea Some say he was a prisoner who never was set free Lost upon the ocean, he died there in the mist Dreaming all a kiss Bitter green, they called her, walking in the sun Loving everyone that she met Bitter green, they called her, waiting in the sun Waiting for someone to take her home Now the bitter green has gone The hills have turned to rust Here comes a weary stranger His tears fall in the dust Kneeling by the churchyard In the autumn mist Dreaming all the Bitter green, they Walking in the sun loving everyone that she made it. bit of green they called her waiting in the sun waiting for someone to take her home bit of green they call her walking in the sun loving everyone.